Please turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 16. James 1, verse 16. When I was in high school, I had a young life leader who loved to play pranks. And uh, he was living with a guy who made uh, custom pools and custom spas. Uh, His roommate owned the house. And so at this house, his roommate uh, put in for them their own custom spa. And uh, each night, my friend would take a bucket and he would empty out a gallon or two of water out of the spa. And so his roommate would come home and he'd see that it was down a little bit and he'd fill it back up with water. And every night he'd take another gallon or two and he'd dump it out. And so he'd come back in, it seems like it's going down. He'd fill it back up with water. This happened you know, for a couple of weeks, and finally his friend drained it and resealed all of the tile. It was all handmade, so he resealed all that and got it all full again. And my friend started it again, and he started emptying it out. You know, a gallon or two every night, he'd dump it out. Kept going on, so he, the roommate drained the spa again and, and tore all the tile out and retiled the whole thing, refilled it. So each night my roommate took a bucket of water. And he'd take a gallon or two and he'd dump it. Then one night, his roommate came home early and he was there and he was dipping the bucket into the spa, dumping water out. And he looked up and he saw his roommate and he said, I didn't do it. (laughs) That's amazing, you know? That's a great illustration of deceit with a healthy dose of denial, right? He just proclaimed his innocence. He kept on, no, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. We live in a world full of deceit. We're surrounded by deceit. That's the air we breathe. James is writing to a group of people who are surrounded by deceit, and they are succumbing to that deceit. And so he warns them. Read with me, chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Do not be deceived. It's a warning that many New Testament authors offer their readers. Don't be taken in by lies that are being promoted as truth. Don't be tricked. Don't be defrauded. Do not be deceived. Where does it come from? Jesus gives us a glimpse in John chapter 8. It says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is the father of lies. He's the father of lies. He's the originator of lies. All that he does is lie. All that he can do is lie. All that he can do is harm and deceive. He's the original source. Years ago, about 500 BC, Sun Tzu wrote a classic book called The Art of War that I thought was an apt description of our adversary, the devil. He says, all warfare is based on deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. Hold out baits to entice the enemy, feign disorder, and crush him. That is Satan's strategy in our lives. He's the father of lies. He is bent on destruction. He's the thief that comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I want you to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3. We looked briefly at this last week. But Genesis chapter 3 is probably the single most important passage for you to understand fallen human nature. In the entire Bible, 
Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent, who was the devil in the form of a snake, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Remember we said last week and the week before, The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. We might want to expand that and say the root of sin is any lie about the character of God that we believe. And this very short paragraph is full of lies. Verse 1. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? God didn't say you can't eat from any tree of the garden. Satan immediately distorts what God has said. He casts doubt on God's character undermines the word of God and the authority of God's word. He puts a seed, plants a seed of deceit in the woman's mind. Verse 2 says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. What had God said? He said, From the fruit of the trees of the garden you may eat. Eat. Remember in Hebrew, eat, eat. It's repeated. It is eat freely. Her suspicion begins by diminishing the generosity and the goodness of God and what he's provided for her. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Did God say don't touch it? No. God just said, don't eat. Eat freely. You have an entire garden. Eat. eat. Enjoy everything that's in the garden except that one tree. Don't eat. She diminishes his goodness and she exaggerates God's strictness. Now the serpent goes into direct denial. He says, the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, you surely will not die. God is lying. Because God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. In fact, God is withholding something good from you. And he distorts the character of God. And with this lie, he deceives her. And when she takes the fruit and eats, and then she gives it to her husband and he eats... They become deceivable. They become vulnerable for the rest of their existence to Satan's lies. If you look just one more chapter, they have children. Their firstborn, Cain, is vulnerable to deceit. Root of bitterness springs up in his relationship with his brother and his relationship with God and So we move from Adam and Eve rejecting the authority of God and taking a piece of fruit to their firstborn son, killing their secondborn son. Just like that. And somewhere along the line, he believes a lie because he entices his brother to go out in the middle of the field. He kills him and buries him, and he says to himself, obviously, God won't see. God won't see. God won't know. I won't get caught. Believing one lie makes us vulnerable to other lies. And the fact of the matter is, because we inherit something from Adam and Eve, we are vulnerable to deception. And we are foolish if we think we're not. Now here's the bad news. That wasn't bad enough. We're not only vulnerable to deception, we deceive ourselves. It's not just that deception comes from outside. 
we stir up our own deception from inside. Martin Luther once said, the world wants to be deceived. We read a story this last week about a man who invested his life savings in a fraudulent business scheme. And after being burned, he went to the Better Business Bureau and he was telling one of the staff members about this fraudulent scheme. And the staff member at the Better Business Bureau said, gosh, I really, I wish you had come to us earlier. Why didn't you come to us earlier? And the man said, because I was afraid you'd tell me not to do it. (laughs) We're not only deceivable, but there's something in us that even longs to be deceived. Isaiah chapter 30, it says, A rebellious people says to the prophets, You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Ooh. Could that be us? A rebellious people says to the prophets, You must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions, just tell us what we want to hear. Or as Paul says to Timothy, in latter days people will accumulate teachers for themselves in accordance to their own desires. That is, tell us what we want to hear. He uses a metaphor, he says, tickle our ears. Don't tell us truth. Tell us what we want to hear. We're deceivable and we can even deceive ourselves. That was what was going on in James The people to whom he was writing were giving in to deception, particularly the deception that God is not, in fact, good. They were suffering. They were suffering economic hardship. They were suffering persecution for their faith. They were suffering oppression from the rich around them. And in that setting, they were vulnerable to temptation. Christians, we are most vulnerable when we are suffering. It is when we are suffering that we say to ourselves, Is God really good? Is God really paying attention? Does God really care? Is he on duty or is he taking a nap? Can I trust him? And so frequently we give in to the temptation. We say, no, he probably isn't and he probably doesn't know best. And I'm responsible now to fix the situation. The readers of this letter were not trusting God and they were taking matters into their own hands. They had desires and they had needs. He said, we've got to take care of it. We've got to manage it. And James says right here at the beginning of the book, as he's laying a foundation for what he will write later, he's saying, no, the only preventative measure you have for a lie is the truth. The only protection we have against our adversary, whose only strategy is to lie, is to believe truth. Read with me verse 16 again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, there is no shifting shadow. Believe the truth, which is, God is good. In fact, he says, everything that is good comes from God. He says it twice, actually, he uses interesting language. Literally, uh, every good giving and every perfect gift is from above. Not everything that you enjoy in life, that's what he's saying, but he's saying any good that you have, anything that's beneficial for you, the ultimate source of that good thing is God. He's the only one who does good. Remember when Jesus was talking with the the ruler and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, you're calling me good teacher, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And what he's saying is, not that he's not God, he's saying God is the ultimate source of all good. 
Acts chapter 14, Paul's sermon. He said, God did not leave himself without witness in that he did good. He gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. When the rain came and produce came out of the earth and you ate and you enjoyed, that was from God. Jesus says, Christian, non-Christian, God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on all people. Why? Because God is good. Psalmist put it beautifully. Psalm chapter 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just read and think and memorize, but taste and see God is good. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said what Man among you, is there among you, who when his son asks for a loaf, will he give him a stone? Uh, Jesus is joking there. That's humor. You know, I bet they can <laughs> got our attention now. If you ask for a fish, you won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Ah, you're a bunch of evil fathers. And you give good gifts. You can't imagine your son asks for a loaf, are you going to hand him a stone? Sure, here, eat this. If you ask for a fish, you're not going to hand him a snake? Well, bite him? No, you wouldn't even think about it. And relative to God, you're evil. God is good. It is in his very nature to give good gifts. In fact, every good thing given and every perfect gift finds its source in God. That's a pretty bold statement. Everything? Uh, You know, I was thinking about the good gifts that I have received or the blessings that I have in my life this week. And I thought first about my wife, one of the most wonderful blessings I could ever have. And then I thought to myself, you know, I made that happen. I found her. I found her. I wooed her. I convinced her. I broke her down. And uh, she fell in love. Couldn't resist. It's not how it happened, is it? I didn't make her. I didn't cause her to be born. I didn't direct the steps of her life so that she miraculously landed in College Station and somehow was discipling my cousin so that God could arrange circumstances so that we could meet. I didn't didn't manage all that. And literally, God had to soften her heart to love me. It was a miracle. It was a gift from God. My job, I love my job. But I made this happen. I went to school. I studied hard. I worked hard. I learned how to do my craft. I earned the right. No, that's not how it happened. I didn't give birth to myself in my particular family. I didn't make the choices for our family to move here so that I could become connected with this church I didn't create my body. I didn't create my mind. I didn't create the web of relationships, the complex web of relationships necessary to bring me to this point so that I could do this thing. It's a gift from God. And I can go through and and think about all of the wonderful things in my life. And ultimately, I trace them all back to God. He's the originator of all that is good. God is good. And James says, if you want to be protected from deceit, don't believe the lie. Believe the truth. 
God is good. He goes on, God is good and everything good comes from him. Not only that, but God's goodness is unchanging. God is always good and he's always good all of the time. Verse 17 again. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Uh, James is full of metaphors and notice what he's saying here. He's saying everything that's good has its source in God. It comes down from above, that is from the Father of lights, that is the one who created the sun and the moon and the stars. He created all of the hosts of the heavens. But they seem to move. You know, from our vantage point, they're they're always shifting. And the sun is the brightest and closest star to us, and it casts a shadow, but that shadow is moving. But God is the father of these things. He's the creator of them, but he's not like them. In God's light, there is no shadow. There is nothing to shift. Because God is always good. He is unchanging. As it says in the book of Malachi, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. That is, sons of Jacob, you've rebelled against me and you deserve to be put off, but I don't. Why? Because I don't change. You change. You change like the shifting shadows. You're always moving and changing, but I don't. That's why you survive, because of who I am. Not because you are worthy of my good gifts, but because I am unchanging in my goodness. Have you ever had a friend or a family member, co-worker, who was unpredictable? Good mood or bad mood today? They can be calm or they can be volatile. This morning, somehow, I don't know how, but it came up in our conversation. I was bringing the kids in to church and my son and I began to talk about, he was talking about, a friend that he had who he said, you know, you just never know if that guy, I wasn't telling him the sermon. I wasn't preaching to him ahead of time. You know, Let me try this out on you. What do you think about it? We're just talking. He brought it up. He goes, yeah, you know, this guy, he's always changing and he's so moody and this, you know, it's hard to be around him. He's always shifting. And I said, well, I did get in my sermon plug. I go, but God's not like that, is he? So God is always good. You can always trust God. Every good thing given, every perfect gift, he says it two ways, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights within the, with whom there is no variation, there is no shifting shadow. God doesn't move around. His goodness is unchanging. I want you to turn back to Psalm chapter 23 with me. Keep your place here in James. And look at Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23, many of us probably have memorized this. It's one of the most beautiful and famous songs. It's it's a wonderful testament to the goodness of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Why does God give good to me? For his name's sake. Because the goodness that he gives is a reflection of his nature. Not that I'm worthy or deserving, but God is good. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and loving kindness or loyal love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That phrase in verse 6, surely goodness and your loyal love will follow me. Is a really, uh, it's a lame, innocuous translation. The word for follow, it's, a, it, it's the term where a general and his army are pursuing and chasing down another or where one animal is chasing another and trying to capture the prey. It is God is chasing us down for good. He is hunting us to give us good. Surely, goodness and mercy, yours, your loyal love will hunt me down all the days of my life. Not because I deserve it, but because God is good. God is unchanging in his goodness. He is always good. Turn back with me to James chapter 1. James will illustrate this point and drive it home by pointing our attention to the greatest gift that God has given us, the gift of life. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He does not change. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What James is talking about here is regeneration. In the exercise of God's will, because of God's character, he gave us birth. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Now notice the contrast. Verse 14 Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Sin brings forth death. God brings forth life. He uses exactly the same vocabulary, the same verb. Sin brings forth death. God brings forth life. Four New Testament authors talk about Uh, regeneration. James, Peter, John, Paul. They all use slightly different terminology. Uh, If you are studying 1 Peter right now in our Bible studies, you're probably beginning to notice there are a lot of parallels between what James is saying and what Peter is saying. One of the reasons is they're both writing to people who are suffering. I want you to notice the similar terminology that Peter uses about regeneration. He says, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. You have been born again through a seed. The seed is the word. It's imperishable. James chapter 118, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It's not that ideas cause us to be born again. It's that the word is the mediating cause because we hear the word of truth about Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and paid the debt, and he was raised from the dead, proving that God has conquered death and he can give life that lasts forever. And when we believe, we are born again. And the word mediates that truth to us. That is regeneration, moving out of death into life. Kenneth Keithley wrote a book called Salvation and Sovereignty in which he said, Regeneration is the act of the Holy Spirit whereby he imparts eternal life into a person. This is Romans 1 through 8 in a nutshell. We studied last week. We are born dead. That is, we're born separated from God because we are born having inherited a nature from Adam. We're dead. We're separated from God. 
We need God and we need life, but we can't initiate that life. So God initiates. He draws us. He woos us. His spirit invites us. And we respond in faith and he causes us to come to life out of death. Now I realize that not everyone agrees on the order of how that transpires and the mystery of God's will. Uh, If you want to dig more into that this week, please feel free. Here's a great book to go into it. The important point is to remember this. We can't initiate the process. But God does initiate. And our responsibility is to believe. Beautiful picture of this in Uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was given a vision. And in his vision, he walks out and he sees a a valley and it is full of bones that have been baked in the sun. They're dead. They're all dried up. And God says to Ezekiel, what do you think, Ezekiel? Can these bones live? And Ezekiel wisely says, I don't know, but you do. God, I I don't know. I mean, I don't want to say no, God, because you're God. I can't imagine, I've never seen bones come to life. And God said, well, just kick back and and watch and see what happens here. And so God causes his spirit to come in the form of wind and the wind blows across the bones and the bones begin to be collected. They're scattered everywhere. And, you know, the shin bone gets connected to the thigh bone and its pieces start to come together, right? And there's a body and then there's connective tissue here and then there's muscle and, and skin and then God breathes the breath of life and all of a sudden Ezekiel sees an army standing in front of him. That was a, a prefiguring vision of regeneration, to be born again. Jesus tried to explain this to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born from above. You've got to have a second birth. You're born once physically, but in that physical death, you're also spiritually dead. You're separated from God. And what you need is you need to come to life spiritually. Your spirit is independent from God, separate from God. And you will live out your whole life Figuring it out on your own. Making life work on your own. Until you believe that Jesus died for your sins and can reconcile you to God. When you do that, God's spirit reunites with your spirit and you are spiritually alive. You will grow old and you will die, but you will live forever. And like that valley of dry bones, you will be resurrected to new life that lasts forever in the presence of God. That is the gospel. And only Jesus Christ can accomplish this for you. James says, of course God is good. He gives you life. Or as Paul would say, if God has given us his son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God is good. And he's always good. Now how do we apply this? James is going to say, be patient. Because not everything is going to get set right now, and you're going to have to wait. I want you to read with me. Start again in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Don't believe the lies that God is not good. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, God is always good, and he's good all the time. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. He brought us forth, not simply to get us into eternity, so that we would be the the harbinger, we would be the down payment for the world, so the world would see, yes, God is setting all things right. Look at how these people are good like God is good. 
the first fruits. You know this, my beloved brethren. Now, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Okay? Three really punchy commands. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is what we're going to talk about for the rest of the semester. Okay? In some form or fashion, James is unpacking each of these three commands in the rest of the book. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Okay? Listen to God. To be quick to hear means not just hear the voice of God, but obey. Okay, listen and obey. Chapter 1, verse 22. Prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves or deceive themselves. Okay, listen to God. When you are, you're struggling and you're suffering and a voice is whispering into your ear, God is not good, listen to God. God is good. Listen to the voice of those around you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Listen, because truth will guard and protect you. It will be a shield around you. It will be wisdom from above, not earthly wisdom that brings death, but the wisdom from God that brings life. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Slow to defend yourself. Slow to lash out against your oppressors. Remember, they're poor They're economically oppressed and they're persecuted. They're Jews who were born in Palestine, but now they're outside. They're in foreign lands. There are foreign languages. They don't fit in culturally. They're also Christians, so they don't fit in with the other Jews around them. They're not Roman citizens, so they don't have rights. So when they're suffering and they're persecuted, what recourse do they have? Well, they're lashing out verbally against their oppressors, and some are even tempted to to resort to violence. And James says, no, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? Verse 20, because your anger, the anger of man, does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man cannot achieve, and you should write here in the margin, God's justice. Your anger can't set everything right. So be patient. Chapter 5, verse 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient, Strengthen your hearts because the coming of the Lord is near. And if the coming of the Lord is near, then God will set all things right. See, throughout Scripture, God reserves for himself the right to exact vengeance. And for the state as a reflection of his justice. But he doesn't leave room for personal revenge. I want you to turn back with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will receive praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. In other words, Paul says, ultimately God holds justice. 
And the state is a reflection of God's justice. God reserves justice for himself and for the state. Chapter 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's Deuteronomy. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap burning coals on his head. That's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but instead you overcome evil with good. Because you're the first fruits of God's goodness on the earth. Now practically, what does that mean for us? Is there never a place for righteous anger? It's a pretty relevant topic, I think. Uh, National elections are coming up and Christians are concerned. We want righteousness on the earth. Is there a place for righteous anger? I would argue absolutely yes. We're in a little different setting, aren't we, than was written in the book of James. Non-citizens displaced from their homeland, they are without rights. But in a representative democracy, who is the state? Well, we are. We elect representatives and we hold them accountable. And so we have an obligation, I would argue, as Christians living in this culture at a bare minimum to vote. We also have an obligation, and James is going to talk about this, we'll get into it in a couple weeks, to seek justice for those who are vulnerable. The poor, the orphans, the widows. God has a deep and special concern for those who are vulnerable and aren't normally protected by society. We should seek justice. We should at a bare minimum vote and we should vote for biblical values, for the rule of law, for life. We should vote for these things. We should work for these things. We should labor for these things. The application of this passage for us is, but don't take personal revenge. Don't take personal revenge. One of the greatest ways that your friends and your family members will see the goodness of God in your life is when they wrong you and you don't take personal revenge. Let me read to you again, chapter 12, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When Jesus was hanging on the cross... He looked down and he chose intentionally not to take personal revenge. When he was insulted and reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats. Instead, he hung there and he looked up and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there's absolutely nothing more important in your life than that your friends and your family members and your coworkers know Jesus Christ. And sometimes God will cause it to be that you suffer at their hands and in suffering show them God's goodness so that they're turned to Jesus Christ. Two things for us to think about as we close. First, if you don't know Jesus Christ, receive God's goodness today. I feel very confident that God is calling out to you today and he's saying today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day that you can say yes. I believe Jesus died for me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're suffering, I encourage you to rest in God's goodness. Take some time this week and trace it back. 
All the good things in your life, trace them back. Where do they, where do they belong? Where do they come from? I don't know if all of you in the back have ever noticed this. I'm sure those of you who sit up close have seen it. But Justin, our percussionist, he brings his dog to help guide him. His dog is right here during the service. And I've noticed this several times, but Mike reminded me this morning, too, as we were sitting here. While worship is going on, the drums are beating. He's doing percussion. We got a cello today. We got a couple vocalists, a guitar, bass guitar back there. Pianos going, all that's and and uh, the dog is out, right? <laughs> and I, I have many times looked up there and thought, what a great visual illustration. Chaos all around, but he's just sitting at the feet of his master, and Justin has it all under control. There's chaos sometimes all around in our lives. We're sitting at the feet of our master, and we know he's good. We can rest. God is good. Let's pray. Father, we do trust you. Help us when we don't. Father, guard and protect us with truth when lies are creeping into our hearts and minds. May we be reminded this week the truth that you are, in fact, the source of all good, all best blessing and benefit in our lives. Father, we thank you most of all for the gift of Jesus Christ, our good. Let's pray. Father, all that we have needed, you have provided. Not necessarily all that we have desired and longed for, but all that we need. Because you have dealt with our deepest problem, the problem of sin and debt to you, and you've removed it in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that evidence that you are good. I pray, Father, this morning that you'd send us out into this world, that we would be salt and light, that we would be the first fruits of your goodness on this earth. People would see in us a reflection of your very nature. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.